Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church. Some parts of the world are known for their technology, their athletics, or their military might. And yet other parts of the world are simply known for their excessive wealth. Just imagine what the world would be like if we didn't have Middle Eastern oil or Swiss bank accounts or Singaporean electronics or Silicon Valley tech companies. Those who monitor global markets and investments care deeply for such things. And it is so easy to be seduced by the glitz and glamour of all this wealth. You see, as as Christians, if you're, you're here today as a Christian, you might be able to withstand the frontal assault coming against you, the assault of immorality and godlessness and atheism, things trying to attack you and pull you away. And we might withstand those things, and yet our hopes can still rise or fall with the stock market or the latest trade agreement. Followers of Jesus Christ need to know they have a devious enemy. There is an accuser and a foul opponent who will stop at nothing to devour them and shatter their faith in a kind and gracious God. This devil, this Satan, sometimes he does this devouring through a full-on assault, through persecution, through oppressive regimes. But sometimes he does the devouring through the sweet and seductive promises of material satisfaction and fiscal stability. So the prophet Isaiah wants us to know in chapter 23 of his book that there is one person who controls all these things. We're studying straight through the book of Isaiah. This is most of the way we teach at our church here, and so we're now in chapter 23. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 338. Isaiah wants us to know that there is one person who controls all these things. There is a divine financier, a, a, a banker, a lender, if you will, the financial planner. There's this divine financier who alone controls the world's markets and who alone redistributes his wealth as he sees fit. His judgments on unbelieving nations have global implications, and this ought not to take us by surprise. When he executes his judgment, it will affect us. And so our only chance of some security or stability in a tumultuous world is to plant ourselves firmly in the camp of this divine financier. We do that by drawing near to follow his son, Jesus Christ, who himself became poor, so we in our poverty might become rich in him. So you can see in your outline, Isaiah makes two points, that Yahweh alone controls the global market, and second, Yahweh alone redistributes wealth as he sees fit. Let me pray, and then I'll read the first 14 verses of Isaiah 23. Father in heaven, please help us now as we study your word. Lord, this is an old book. This is an old part of this book. Sometimes it's the things in it are hard to understand. I pray that you would open our eyes, enlighten our hearts, 
by your Holy Spirit whom you've given, that we would see you and understand what you have for us, that our hopes might not rise and fall with the global markets, but that our hope would be firmly planted in you and your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So first, Yahweh alone controls the global market. We're in a large section of Isaiah's book that delivers judgment on many nations. This started at chapter 13 and goes all the way through 27. We're now reading the final prophecy in the second cycle. He structures his prophecies here in three cycles. And this is the last one. It wraps up Isaiah's description of the post-apocalyptic world. This is what the world is like after the main enemies of God and Judah have been wiped out. And this fifth oracle in this second cycle is against the city of Tyre. It's a city that sits on the Mediterranean Sea on the coast just north of Judah, modern-day Palestine. It's a port city, which along with its sister city, Sidon, right next door, they sent and received merchant ships around the world. And this city was pretty close to being the ancient world's center of commerce. And so destruction on Tyre has dramatic ramifications for the world. Here's what Isaiah has to say, starting at verse 1. The oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast. The merchants of Sidon who crossed the sea have filled you. And on many waters... Your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coast, is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? Yahweh of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. Yahweh has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. Now, although this poem is clearly marked in verse 1 as an oracle concerning Tyre, The article concerning Tyre, this first section of it, verses 1 to 14, it begins and ends with an admonition to a different city, Tarshish, 
to wail. Verse 1, wail, O ships of Tarshish. And then again in verse 14, wail, O ships of Tarshish. This begins and ends this section. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, to be honest, but our best guess is that it was somewhere in Spain, which was basically the most far-off place that the Old Testament writers could think of. Think of they're living in the Middle East, they're in Palestine, going across the Mediterranean, all the way across there, you know, in between, uh, you know, underneath Greece and Italy and around and up to Spain. There would be ships that would go out there. This is why in the book of Jonah, a disobedient prophet, Jonah, got on board a ship bound for Tarshish. It was to get as far away as possible from the place where God wanted him to go. And so, and you see here in verse 1, it's the ships of Tarshish that are to wail. Because in the wake of the destruction of Tyre, this coastal city in the north of Palestine, in the wake of Tyre's destruction, these Tarshishian ships, I've always wanted to say that in a sermon, <laughs> these Tarshishian ships have nowhere to land and to tout their wares. In the body of this poem, Isaiah has two very simple points to make. You can see A and B. He wants us to know that Tyre controls the global market, but then Yahweh controls Tyre. So Yahweh is really the one who controls the global market. You put these two together for that larger point. So first, letter A in verses 2 through 7, we see that Tyre controls the global market. Verse 3 informs us that Tyre's wealth was drawn from the abundance of Egypt. It mentions the Shihor and the Nile. Those are the main waterways of Egypt. And it also gives us a clue in this verse by calling Tyre the merchant of the nations. Tyre had an important role to play in the global marketplace. She was merchant of the nations. In verse 4, Tyre's sister city, Sidon, is not to be ashamed. I'm sorry, is to be ashamed because the sea will not take care of her as a parent might take care of a child. And then verses 5 through 7, we see the impact of Tyre's fall on the nations of the world. Verse 5, Egypt will be in anguish. In verses 6, and seven, the coastal peoples will wail because they will no longer be able to exult in Tyre or in the prosperity that Tyre brings to them. The picture here is one describing how significant Tyre's influence has been on the world's economy. And so judgment on Tyre is akin to a judgment on the whole world. And that's why this is the climactic prophecy at the end of this second cycle. Children, how would you feel if the Disney company declared bankruptcy and could never make any more movies or toys and their amusement parks shut down and people were so sad that they didn't go to any amusement parks anymore and so every amusement park shut down and all the other toy companies went bankrupt as a result? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Adults, imagine if Apple and Microsoft both imploded. Or imagine if Google had a massive data breach. Big trouble, right? Seriously, such things would be devastating to the world. 
deeply impacting the quality of our lives. And that's the picture here. In a similar way, we see from verses 2 through 7 that Tyre controls the global market. And so when bad things happen to Tyre, the ramifications are disastrous for everybody else. So Tyre controls that. But letter B, in verses 8 through 14, we see that Yahweh controls Tyre. Verse 8 shifts the focus by asking a crucial question. Who has purposed this against Tyre? Who is responsible for this state of affairs, this downfall, this ruining of all the world's wealth and well-being? After all, Tyre's merchants were princes. Her traders were the honored of the earth. And he answers the question in verse 9. Yahweh of armies has purposed it. Again, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's a reference that's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's personal name. And other translations, instead of hosts, will say armies. Because when we hear the word hosts, we think of, of hotels or restaurants or something. But, but really what it means is military hosts. Yahweh of armies has purposed it. He delights in defiling people's pompous pride. He loves to dishonor all the honored of the earth. In verse 10, we're told that Tarshish, that faraway city in Spain, can now go wherever she wants with no restraint. But it's, it's dark. It's, it's ugly for them because she will not prosper as she once did before Tyre's fall. In verse 11, we're told again that Yahweh is the one who has done this. And he did it by merely stretching out his hand over the sea to shake the kingdoms. He has given his command for Canaan, the land of Palestine, to destroy Tyre on his behalf. And in verse 12, he has assured Sidon that there will be no more self-exaltation or rest. In verse 13, Isaiah draws attention to another people group, the Chaldeans, who are far away. And by this point, the early Chaldeans have been nearly wiped out. And he says, look over there. Look at the Chaldeans, the people who were not. In the same way, Tyre will be no more. He's going to end up just like that. Tyre will be stripped and made into a ruin. And so in verse 14, therefore the ships of Tarshish, the most distant traders, will wail in sorrow because of how this impacts them. Now, what are we to make of this poem? Why am I going through all of this? Why would we read this old thing in this, this ancient part of the world Friends, when reading these chapters of Isaiah, all this judgment in chapters 13 through 27, it is so easy to just drift off and let our minds wander and our eyes glaze over. And it just seems like page after page of, of judgment and judgment and judgment and anger and anger. And what do we do with this? Why belabor such a simple point? Why couldn't we just have preached one sermon on this whole section and just said God is going to judge? And the reason is because the Lord, I think, wants us to see all the different aspects of his judgment. And he gave us all these chapters to show us judgment. It means this, and it implies this other thing. And you need to look out for this, and you need to see this too. And so that first cycle of judgments in chapters 13 through 20, they began with Babylon and ended with Egypt, the two mightiest superpowers who posed the greatest military threat to Isaiah's nation of Judah. The Jews were most likely to put their hope in one or the other of them 
because of their power and their strength. And the second cycle of judgments from chapters 21 to 23, it began with Babylon again, and it now ends with Tyre. Babylon remains the mighty one who has fallen hard like a giant oak tree crushing the roof above unsuspecting inhabitants of a house. But Tyre is a different kind of a threat. The Jews would be tempted to trust in Tyre, not because of its great strength, but because of its great wealth. Babylon and Tyre are like the twin pillars of the ancient world, political, military power versus commercial success, control through force versus control through seduction. And friends, we must be alert for Satan to use both tactics through this world system that lives in opposition to the Lord Yahweh and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so both themes are brought together for us in the New Testament. They're built on even in one passage, Revelation chapter 18. John picks up on these themes from Isaiah, and he begins by describing the fall of a new Babylon, a world superpower who has seduced kings and peoples and who has made the merchants of the earth wealthy. And a voice from heaven calls God's people to come out from her, have nothing to do with her, for God will pay her back for her sins. We see the terror of her power being broken, and then we see the merchants of the earth weeping and wailing over the losses they will take because of her fall. And then we read this in verses 19 and 20 of Revelation 18. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. You see, friends, in the book of Revelation, John picks up on Isaiah's prophecy against Tyre. And he turns it into a prediction of the fall of the entire world system that stands opposed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that we are to have nothing to do with her. This is why Isaiah matters. How does this apply? Friends, beware the seduction of the world's goods. Beware the seduction of the world's goods. Monetary security and stability are an illusion. They will not last. Now keep in mind, please, that our Heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to His children. There's nothing inherently wrong with owning a car or a house or a TV or a high-functioning mobile device. As long as you see these things as gifts and yourself as a steward, and these things are not your master, but you put them in service to serve your master, the one who controls the global market, your king of heaven, Jesus. And as you do this, your love and your hope are directed more passionately to the divine financier who controls them all. Now, we're putting almost all of our data on the cloud these days. Would you be okay if that cloud evaporated and you lost all that stuff 
Will you be okay if your data gets hacked? Will you be okay if you lose your stuff? Will you be okay if the largest providers of your wealth and your entertainment fall apart? And if their demise splashes onto your quality of life? Will you rejoice and be glad for the Lord has judged her for you? Will God still be your God? Will you still praise Jesus sitting on his throne? Whether you are already a follower of Jesus or not, these questions still matter. Will your life be ruined if your 401k crashes, if your savings get stolen, if your vehicle rusts to death? Now, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't even have these things. And I'm also not saying that you should try to invest in things that you know are going to fall apart. No, please make wise financial decisions. I'm simply trying to speak to the allegiance of your heart and the object of your affection. Beware the seduction of the world's goods. It will all be lost in the end. Yahweh alone controls the world's markets. But also, second point, Yahweh alone redistributes wealth as he sees fit. This is not the end of the story for Tyre. As we've seen in previous prophecies with Egypt, with Assyria and other nations, Tyre, just like them, Tyre will make a glorious comeback. But Tyre's comeback has a twist that none of the others have had. Let me read verses 15 through 18 to finish off the chapter. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to Yahweh. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh. In verse 15, we're told that Tyre will be out of commission for 70 years. And at the end of that time, Tyre would become like a resurrected prostitute ready to seduce the world's nations once again. This is a a crazy image. Verse 16, he goes on to talk about how Tyre will sing a song. He's probably quoting a well-known song of the time, the song of the prostitute. And the the, the image here is, is that this prostitute went into retirement out of age or sickness or whatever. She could not do her job that she was trying to do, but... But now things have changed. She's gotten a little better and she's decided she's going to make a comeback. And so this, this former prostitute who's now old and wrinkled and sagging is trying desperately to get the attention of unprincipled men once again. So she takes up a harp and wanders the streets singing to draw attention to herself and let them know that she is once more available for hire. This is what's going on. This is crazy. In verse 17, he says, at the end of the 70 years, 
Yahweh will visit Tyre and resurrect her as a commercial center. She will return to her prostitution. She will give her wares to the cities of the world, making them drunk on the base material pleasure she has to offer them. But now get this, verse 18, here's the twist. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to Yahweh. This is amazing. He's saying that Tyre will get all that stuff and she will amass further wealth, but she won't hang on to it. It's not for herself. Instead, her wealth will be used to supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before Yahweh. Her wealth will be taken away and handed over to the people of God for their well-being and to support the worship of God. So she's not restored to worship Yahweh herself. She is restored to make a lot of money so that God can take it away and give it to his people. Now this prophecy was partially fulfilled in Ezra chapter 3. After the Jews had returned home from their exile in Babylon, we read this, verses 6 and 7. From the first day of the seventh month, they began, these people, these Jews, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh, but the foundation of the temple of Yahweh was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So you see, Tyre is hired by the Jews to come and bring all the wealth, all the good stuff to help them rebuild their temple. Tyre's wealth would once again be used to finance the advance of God's kingdom. Here is the glorious plot twist. Tyre is restored, not a restoration to worship of Yahweh on Mount Zion, as was predicted for Egypt, Assyria, Moab, and some of the other nations, but it's a restoration to fiscal prosperity so Yahweh could steal it away and give it to his people. Now, there's a type of preaching that you might hear today called prosperity preaching, which is a type of preaching that preaches a message called the prosperity gospel, which teaches that if you only trust God enough, and if you give enough money to the church, and you pray hard enough, then God will certainly give you health, happiness, and all the wealth you need. You need a new car? Just pray three times, mail a check to the church, and a new car will surely show up on your doorstep. Now let me be clear, this is a false message. This is not in line with the good news about Jesus Christ that we find in the New Testament. Because the Bible teaches that life for Christians is filled with sorrow, suffering, and adversity. For those who follow Jesus, that's what happened to him, and we who follow in his footsteps should expect the same. But I do want to say, say this. There's a, at least one thing that the prosperity preachers get right, which is the fact that there is only one God, the Lord Almighty, the Heavenly Father, who is the source of all blessing. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. And though they're doing it the wrong way, they are calling people to look to God as their source of blessing. And I can't fault that in itself, though they do it the wrong way. 
Friends, true blessing does not come by simply pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, by putting our nose to the grind and working overtime and staying out of trouble. No, true blessing comes when the allegiance of our hearts locks on to the triune creator of the world, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I conclude with one more application. Plant yourself firmly in Jesus Christ so you can avoid the coming economic disaster. Plant yourself firmly in Jesus Christ to avoid the coming economic disaster. Because, friends, this thing that happened to Tyre wasn't just for Tyre. John talks about it in Revelation like I read. It is coming to the world. The world's economic system will fall apart. You see, everything, all the stuff of this world will burn. Not because it's inherently evil. The stuff of the world is not inherently evil. And it's not because we hope to eventually be disembodied spirits floating someday in the sweet-smelling ether by and by. We don't need any of the, the ugly, evil, bad, physical stuff. No, it's because Jesus is bringing a new heaven and a new earth. We'll get to this later in Isaiah. But for now, you need to know that Yahweh will redistribute the world's resources for his own purposes and for his own people's good. And the only way you get to join in that is to plant yourself firmly in Jesus Christ. Come out in support of him. Follow him. Ally yourself with Jesus, the King of Kings. Bank all of your hopes on that one who died and who rose from the dead to make all things new. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ where he died, where he poured out his blood for us, God leveled the playing field. So that anyone who loves Jesus and trusts that his death pays in advance for my own, that person will receive the redistribution of wealth that comes when the world's economic centers will fall. If you trust him and steward what you have on the present earth, you just may find yourself to be in charge of an entire city on the new earth. That's what the New Testament teaches. Others who do exceptionally well may receive five or ten cities. It's a picture of the stuff that God wants to dump out on his people. And friends, this matters now because it puts everything in perspective. Aaron and I have recently realized that our Volkswagen Jetta is on its last legs. And we've begun shopping for the next car. As we do this, and I'm starting to enter this market, I feel the pull. I feel the seduction of the world. I feel the pull where I want more car. I want newer, better more features, and I want the status that comes along with such things. This is so seductive, and it is so deceptive. But as a steward, on behalf of my Lord, my Master, Jesus Christ, I don't need to buy a junker. I can try to find the best deal, get a good bang for our buck, get something that's going to be reliable and care for the needs that God has brought into our life at this point. And I can seek to honor my king with my purchase. I can trust him to provide what I need. I can let go of what I don't. And I can 
especially trust him to provide the wisdom I need to make a good choice. Because I know the Lord Jesus is Lord. And I invite you to confess with me, Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. Jesus is the divine financier. He alone controls the world's markets. And he alone redistributes wealth as he sees fit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in your hand are all the corners of the earth, and your kingdom is over all. Jesus, you are Lord. You are our Lord. And we do not need all the stuff that we think we need. We don't need Disney or Google or Apple or Microsoft. We don't need any of these things. We don't need the global economy. We need Jesus. And Jesus, we trust you that you would hold us fast, make us your own, and grant us what we need. And Father, for any here who don't know you, I pray that they would see the insecurity and the instability of all the stuff that we're pursuing and that you, Jesus, will never let us down. Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.